Welcome to Real Estate Real World, where we talk to the movers, shakers, and leaders that are getting it done right now in the real estate industry and beyond. Your host is Marguerite Crispillo, and she started this podcast simply to talk to cool people about what's really happening in this crazy roller coaster ride of real estate. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and stay up to date on the newest stuff by adding yourself to the list at www.realestaterealworld.com. Now your host, Marguerite Crispillo. Hello, everybody. It's Marguerite Crispillo, and welcome to another fabulous edition of the Real Estate Real World, where we get to talk to all of the interesting, amazing, and fascinating people just like my very special guest that I have here today, Ryan Lundquist. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Marguerite. How are you? Good. So we're laughing a little bit because this is the third time's the charm. And I love to tell people about our screw-ups as well as our successes. And so the first time we tried to record, I couldn't get any sound. We were having all kinds of issues. The second time, we had a great conversation, went through the whole hour, and as soon as I hung up with you, I realized that I had not pushed the record button. So we figured out third time is the charm, and I'm happy that you are willing to accommodate me three times. Oh, absolutely. And is it, are you sure it's recording? <laughs> I am sure. I've checked, double checked. We can both hear each other. We should be all good. good. I can see your we're smile. Good. So yeah, we're good. So let me tell you guys a little bit about Ryan. I'll give you some info on his bio. Ryan Lundquist is a certified residential appraiser in the Sacramento area. His clients include homeowners, real estate agents, governmental agencies, attorneys, and lenders. Ryan runs a Sacramento appraisal blog, which I happen to have up right now, which is a top-ranking appraisal blog in the United States. Ryan has been seen multiple times on CBS 13, quoted in the Sacramento Business Journal, Sacramento Bee, and various other publications. Ryan is the chair of the Housing Opportunity Committee with the Sacramento Association of Realtors and also is a board member of the Real Estate Appraisers Association of Sacramento. And Ryan won the Affiliate of the Year Award in 2014 from the Sacramento Association of Realtors. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. So you run an appraisal blog, which I think is pretty awesome. I have it up on my screen right now called Sacramento Appraisal Blog. And uh, today we're recording, it is November 18th, and we just had our elections happen. So you have this great article I was reading this morning called Predictions, Trump's Impact on the Real Estate and Sacramento Market Update. And so I know that this podcast is actually listened to around the world, actually. Now we have listeners in Australia and Philippines and uh, around the world. But I'm curious what your thoughts are a little bit for our listeners as to how this recent election, in your opinion, is going to um, affect the real estate market in general nationwide. Sure. No, it's well, first of all, thank God the election's over. Oh, hallelujah. So I, oh, oh. And so eventually over time, Facebook will get back to normal. Uh, I mean, yeah. maybe. Who knows? Maybe it's different <laughs> from now on. I mean, it's sort of the public forum and yeah. that we talk about stuff we're thinking about, but a big question mark, and we're going to just have to see what his policies are going to be like. I don't think anyone really knows his policies, and it, it's sort of like after a week or two of um, a couple that just got married, and we would say, well, how's marriage? You know, <laughs> we don't really know what their, how their marriage is going to be, and so it, it's just too little time. We gotta give I mean, right now, a little time. 
Yeah, yeah. And so I think we'll we'll know more. And uh, you know, when we have uh, a few months and a few years into this, um, we'll we'll definitely know more how policies are are going to go. There's a lot of predictions out there, and the, the truth is, no one really has a crystal ball, though. Well, I do know that many of the predictions, especially coming from the Lending Institute, has to do with interest rates and the odds of interest rates rising, which, of course, if interest rates rise a little bit. And, you know, so I have to say, uh, when people complain at all about the interest rates, we bought our first house in 1994 and the interest rate was 10%. Yeah. And we were thrilled to get it. Like we were so happy to get 10%. It was a seller carry. And so people, you know, when they complain about the interest rates going from like three and a half to four, I ha I just, I struggle with that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it definitely yeah. can affect people's purchasing power. Absolutely. Yeah. And if people are strapped already, and I think they were in this place with real estate where values have risen and, you know, we're in this place where we haven't seen as much wage growth and where the economy is coming along, but maybe not where we would like it to be. So an increase in interest rates could end up being a bigger deal. And so a minor uptick might not be that much. But, you know, we do hear buyers going, oh, my gosh, it's it's a little bit higher now. And, and but will that really make a difference? Um you know, I, I mean, I, I think time will tell, but but obviously, if rates went up to five and a half percent, then that would make a huge difference because then that's where it starts. You start to feel it in the wallet. Um, if it went up immediately to that level, that that's what I'm saying. Well, and so it, what that could potentially do? Well, two things happen, at least in my history of seeing, is that if the interest rates start to bump even a little bit, people start to get nervous and they jump off the fence right thinking well if interest interest rates go higher i could be priced out of the market so it does get some of those people who've been waffling back and forth but i think the biggest thing that i seem to be hearing lately and i've been hearing it more even in this last week is that a lot of people seem to think that reos are coming back yeah and what is they your thoughts on that well do you remember when okay so the reo wave came in a big way Okay, 2007, 2008 happened. First quarter of 2009, we had over 70% of all sales in Sacramento County were REOs, over wow. 70. I mean, I that's remember. amazing. That was sort of like the market where you walk in and then it was the market of, of the beeping alarms because, you know, the batteries are going dead. The house exactly. has been vacant for so long and kind of a sad, sad time. But, you know, right now we're at 2% of all sales are REOs. And so we we have really bottomed out that you can't get too much lower than that. And so, um, you know, and same thing with short sales. And so are they coming back? I mean, I remember when sort of the REO wave started to be dealt with and then there was this promised wave. Even all the asset managers were saying, oh, it's coming, it's coming. Yeah. But then it never materialized. And so uh, all I can say from a stats perspective is that it's not here. And so we, we aren't seeing them show up to the market on MLS. If there are some and they're being purchased by institutional funds off the books, I mean, that's another thing, but they're not at least hitting the market. And so um, not, not yeah. yet anyway, not, not that I'm seeing. And, you know, so it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I was doing a lot of REO during that time. And yeah. so I remember everyone saying it was going to get worse and worse and worse and you know, that all of this, uh, what do they call it? Shadow inventory, right? There was yeah, no, exactly. Shadow that, inventory. That was the and, buzz. Yeah. 
And I think I heard that for 10 years, you know, like when is that shadow inventory going to go away? And the truth is from what I saw is a lot of that was sold off the books. So it never even hit the streets. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that too, I mean, we always have these ideas that here is what the market's going to do. Here's what's happening. But at the end of the day, we have to remember to look at the stats too. You know, what do the stats tell us about how much cash is in the market right now or how much FHA or VA conventional, how long is it really taking to sell? What are values doing going up or down? And, and so, you know, sometimes I think we have to, we have these ideas in real estate and let's start to look at the numbers just to see if the numbers tell the same story. So let's uh, switch subjects a little bit because I want to talk a little bit more about the appraisal process is that I don't completely, I think most, at least real estate agents, completely understand the real estate process, right? Like, how do you guys actually determine value? I know we had a great uh, comment in our Facebook group. We have a, I have a great Facebook group called Real Estate Success Strategies and Accountability. And Edgar asked the question, well, I'll let you say, the question had something to do with how come appraisals are different on refis and purchases? Yeah. So first, yeah, Edgar Sanchez, he's a great guy. He, 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 he knows his stuff. He does a really, really good job. I, I recommend him. Um, so he asked a great question. He said, okay, what's the deal? So appraisers know what the contract price is and they look at that during a purchase, but then during a refi, they have no sort of estimate of value or something. Something seems off about that. And, and so in other words, kind of, during a purchase is isn't it kind of fishy that the appraiser knows the contract like the appraiser is going to look at that and then be influenced by that and so I think that's and, a it's a good and, good and question. honestly I never even realized that on refis you didn't have some starting point so they just say appraise it and you tell us what the value is they don't give you any indication as to what value they're trying to get no see before Dodd Frank and the whole appraisal management company system you know, you would have these orders come through and then there was this estimate of value. And so in on the shady side of life, the estimate of value was sort of like, hey, we want you to hit this number. OK. And so there was that sense where a number was provided. Um, Dodd-Frank came along and, you know, the industry kind of cleaned that up. And, and so there's there's nothing. And so the appraiser really shouldn't even be talking about that with um, with the the owner. And so, um, and so sometimes an owner will drop, you know, some, Hey, we need this to appraise at 350, but really the owner is not supposed to do that at all. And so there's, there's really nothing there, um, for, for the appraiser on a refi. And so I guess, so that bodes the question, cause you responded to that too. I want, let me pull up the Facebook post because yeah, I, there was some really good commentary going on in that. And I was, I, I kind of stepped out of it because I was watching it last night to see, you know, where the conversation went because I, I posted, I didn't even know that refis, you didn't have that value. And uh, let yeah. me see, hold on, where is it? Let's see. Do you have it up already? No, no, I know. Oh. I, I was going back and forth. Yeah, you're the one who was writing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Great question. But I mean, I think the, you know, in some cases, it seems like it's fishy, but here's the deal. Fannie Mae wants appraisers to look at the contract. They want appraisers to analyze the contract. And sometimes in the contract, there's some valuable information. Sometimes it tells us a little bit about value, about repairs, about, you know, you see this offering history and you see it get bid up. 
or you see why it was bid down. And, and so sometimes I think there's some valuable data there. But even if appraisers didn't look at the contracts, appraisers would have MLS. They would see the, the listing history. And so they would see that um, the price has been reduced and where pending status came in. And so there is this point that appraisers would consider with the subject. And there's also all the points with with the comps. And so, you know, I could see where someone says, isn't it a suggested value? And, you know, I'd say in some senses, yeah, it probably is because the lender's asking the appraiser, should we make the loan on this property? And so I would say that in that regard, it's probably critical for the appraiser to understand the numbers. Um, you know, but then the question becomes, is it fishy if the appraiser brings the value in right at the contract price? You know, um, and so I know Matt, uh, he's a great loan officer and he was he was kind of like, oh, it's a coincidence. It came in right at contracts. Yeah. And, and, uh, in there. and I think a lot of us feel that way. Um, I think even when I started as an appraiser, I just felt like, is there something fishy going on here? But I think the more I've grown in real estate, the more I see is that there's a reasonable range of value for a property. You know, there's no such thing as, as one specific value where we would look at something and say it is only worth this hyper amount. It can only sell for this amount, okay, because the market's not that sensitive. And so really we might look at a property and, and think, guy, it looks like it could really sell between 340 and 347, okay? That's a pretty tight range too. When something's really exclusive and a very high-end listing, I mean, that range might get a little larger, and so if the appraiser is looking at the market going, okay, this property's in contract at 343.5 and it looks like comps are 340 to 347 and, you know, there were three offers at list price, then I think the appraiser's doing a great job to agree with the market and say this property's been vetted on the open market. And yeah, who am I to reconcile value to 341, right. you know? It's been vetted on the market and, you know, oh, no, it's 341 because the market is so sensitive that I, I'm bringing in the ultimate truth where it's just going to come down a little bit lower. And so as long as there's support for that, I I have no problem reconciling it right there to say, hey, seller and buyer did a great job. This is a this is a good and reasonable price. If it's too low, the price value really should be higher now. If I'm just hitting the number, so to speak, making the deal work, I'm not really being an appraiser. Then I'm just a deal enabler. And and I think we forgot that yeah. when the housing bubble burst and appraisers aren't supposed to be deal enablers. Uh, they're supposed to be a neutral party. So big well, difference there. Well, and at the, the end of the day, though, they're would you even say that they're neutral because they are really paid for by the buyer, hired by the bank, and it's really – the bank wants to justify whether they're going to loan or not. So in a way, it, like it seems like it's a little bit of a con. It's not really neutral per se. You've been hired by the bank, right, to determine that value. Yeah. So you definitely you've been hired by the bank and you know about the property, but you're supposed to be unbiased in, in, in terms of you want the best deal for your buyer or for your seller. And an appraiser is supposed to go in, and that's not supposed to matter to the to the appraiser. Right. That doesn't mean the appraiser's callous or you know unprofessional or a jerk during the inspection, but just to say that, hey, you know, I'm not playing on your team. I'm playing 
on, on my own team objective land and I, and I need to provide some support for this property um, and I'm going to tell the story of the value of the property and I've got to support it and hopefully there's support there in the marketplace. Um, sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Most of the time I think buyers and sellers do a great job once a property has been vetted on the open market. Gosh, yeah, this, you know, it's almost like a rubber stamp sometimes where it's like, yeah, this makes really good sense. In other cases, I talked to an agent today and, and the appraisal came in 20% less than the contract price. Yikes. Right. But the agent also said, you know, we were about 10% too high, we thought. Okay. Right. And so I was like, well, why are you listed 10% too high? But, um, you know, that's another story. But, but you know, they're going to have to figure that out. And, you know, and maybe that's an unfortunate low appraisal. I, I don't really know. I, I'm not privy to that. So that I wrote down a, a few things that I wanted to ask you as you were talking, and one of them has to do with you mentioned multiple offers. So let's say a house is listed for three fifty, and you know during the craziness we would see offers go well, and this happens a lot in the Bay Area, right, San Francisco, the city, where you might get all you might get six seven offers, and you might that price might get pushed all the way to four hundred thousand. Yeah, and that's what someone's willing to pay. But the dilemma, like, so how do you handle that? Because the dilemma is we priced it at 350 because there were comps to support 350. We don't have comps to support 400. Yeah. So first, if I'm going to, I mean, there is such a thing as a property sort of being pushed up to no, no man's land, so to speak, where there's just no support for that. Okay. Right. It makes sense for the one buyer and seller, but appraisers are coming in and answering the question, not, you know, what's specific buyer value what's specific market value so if you lined up a hundred buyers who are interested in the property and qualified what's the most probable price this property should sell for and I think that's a powerful image because we you know I find that sellers want to attract the unicorn buyer you know that right. mystical buyer that, that is willing to pay more than everybody because that's what we all come want. out of the but, Bay Area because they're stupid you know like, yeah, they're not stupid <laughs> they're, they're not stupid you know and, and so but we did say in 2013 we had a market where people were overpaying there were so many institutional funds and they were paying 15 20 thousand cash over and that was the market at the time. Yeah. Right now, the market's not really like that, though. But I feel like sellers are trapped in that 2013 mentality because that's sort of maybe what they've heard through the grapevine. And so, you know, multiple offers, it can it can sometimes say a lot about value. And agents should communicate that really clearly with appraisers. We had this many offers at, at this price level. Maybe that says something about the market. You know, but if they're all, say, FHA and VA offers – Maybe those offers at list price, maybe it's more about they qualified for the loan rather than it's really worth that. And so I, I almost want to know as an appraiser, and that sounds so judgmental in some in some regards, but I want to know the quality of the offers. Right. What's, what are conventional offers coming in, FHA, VA, cash? Because sometimes we can see a tier, you know, depending on what the offer is. And so if we have that one buyer who's basically getting 100% financing way above here, then everyone else is down here. Where's the market? Is it with the one buyer yeah, or is the market really right here? You know, where are the comps? Where are the listings and the pendings, everything getting into contracts? So that's the question we have to ask. That's where we see value in the current market. It, say if the market started to decline, we would see the decline in the properties that are actually getting into contracts. 
So yes, we pay attention to sales, but we're going to see the market moving here. In a market that's moving up, we're seeing we're seeing upward movement with properties that are pending at higher levels. And so sometimes we don't have sales that look like they can necessarily support the value, but if the market's moving up, we look to the pendings and we can adjust the sales up. And so because that's just how markets move. So so that takes me to the next point, which talks a little bit about, um, you were talking about the market going up and down, about seasonal markets, right? I mean, real estate, for the most part, does appear to be a pretty seasonable, I mean, not yeah. season, seasonal, <laughs> don't yeah. tell me that word, Got it. <laughs> seasonal industry, right? And uh, I think less so here in California than maybe some of the other states, but definitely there's a time of year where things seem to sell more than the other times of year. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that I came into real estate and no one ever told me about the seasonal market. And so I had to like learn these things and well, how does the market normally behave in November? What does it normally do in December with volume, with inventory, with prices? And and so I think that a lot of us come in and we never know these dynamics and there's something that we have to learn over time. And so, you know, I have graphs every single month on my blog and it's so powerful. It's powerful for me to create them every month just to be able to see the market visually and you see the prices, you know, during the spring they're going up and then they begin to soften, you know, midsummer and then they slough off. And then sometimes when it sloughs off, we we get uh, we go into freakout mode in real estate. You know, yeah. the market's crashing and, and yeah, eventually we hear it every August, right? Around August, it seems. We do. July. We do. Yeah. And so without fail, 2013, 14, 15 and 16, we've had this market that begins to soften. And then people are like bubble 2.0, the shift is <laughs> here. And, you know, it's all going down or they'll say, oh, my gosh, you know, days on market, it, it's taking longer to sell. And then I would just stand back and say it takes longer to sell every single fall. And. And, and there's, I have such a respect for the market and, and I'm not this big data geek, Doogie Hauser, but I, I love the story that it tells though, when we're looking at the numbers closely, then we can go, oh, this is how the market normally behaves. And yeah. so when we get in touch with that, it's powerful because we can give really good advice to our clients. Um, you know, and it's not to say that the market won't eventually crash because it will. Markets go up, they go down. Okay. But sometimes we're, 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 we're what we're saying is that, the market's crashing, it's turned, but if we, we, we're eventually going to be right if we say that every single year. But in the process, we have to ask the question, are we losing credibility? Are we losing street cred with our clients when they can look back on our Facebook posts and we told them the market was crashing two years ago? And then we told them that last summer. Yeah. We say it now. And so I – you know what? So what's the answer there for for communicating well with clients? Do you know? Do what do we tell them about the future when we can't predict it? Well, it's hard because what what comes to mind as you were saying that was I was thinking back in like uh, 2005. Okay, so it was 2005, August of 2005. I put a house on the market, and two weeks later, that house was still on the market, and I remember thinking that's kind of weird. Did, like, did the winds change? Like something, you know, now obviously I was not in any mode to predict anything, nor did I have any clue of what was to come. But I remember vividly that being August of 2005, that happening. And then I had a manager of a large bank come to me and say, 
hey, my bank is looking for some of the top agents. Will you fill out this REO application? And I was like, what? You know? And he goes, yeah, fill it out. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. And I put it on my desk and I shoved it aside. And about a month later, he's like, can you please give me that application? Like, we really need it. Yeah. Like, he was hounding me, right? Which is yeah. complete opposite of what everyone else was was thinking. I turned in that application. And the day before Christmas, I got five properties assigned to me from the bank. Yeah. And I was like, wow. What? You know, like, that was just crazy. Like, I had no idea what was going on. And that, for me at least, was the very beginning of the REO crisis. But yeah for the most part, many people didn't see that coming on for another year or two. You said that the bottom of the market was what, 2009, 2010? 2012, very beginning. Yeah, yeah. it reached bottom. But yeah, it began to burst in the summer of 2005. Right. You know, but it began to really burst in 2007 where it just, everything unleashed. Yeah. So. But it's it was like, like and it I remember, a and the funny thing is, is I remember during that time, meanwhile, I'm getting properties and I'm like, and I had learned to start, I had to do broker price opinions then, right? So we had to run stats on everything. And up until that point, I had never run statistics. I'd never even read the statistics, yeah. you know? I mean, we yeah. never really had to. I and so I started running these stats and I'm seeing what you were saying about how, you know, 70% of the market was REO. Well, at that time it wasn't, but you could see, you could watch it creeping up each month. Like every two weeks when I would redo yeah. the stats, those numbers would change. I was like, wow, something is going, this is going big. And we, I saw that so much sooner than most agents when, and I'm not saying I was any better or anything. It's just, I was looking at those stats and that's this huge value of looking at those numbers. And that's really what I wanted to get across is that you post that stuff on your blog all the time. And up until that point, I had never even looked at them, was oblivious yeah. to it. And those numbers yeah. are really a predictor, or some sort of predictor in a lot of ways of what's going on in the market. Yeah, I think that, and I, I can resonate with that, with what you said too. And I think anyone in real estate is it, I think we have to up our game over time as the market changes. And, and now we live in such a visual market right now um, with the advent of Zillow, Trulia, Redfin, about you know, 2004, 2005, those came, you know, I, I feel like consumers have so much at their disposal right now, so much data and information that it, don't, that it forces us to sort of step away from those cliches about it's a good time to buy and sell and appraise the house, right. whatever and really get into the numbers. So if I could give any advice to anyone who's thinking, I'm not really a numbers person, first of all, I'll say, yes, you are. Yes. Because when you get your commission check, what do you look at? Numbers. The numbers, <laughs> right? Okay, but, but on a serious note, just ask yourself this question, what does the market normally do this month? And ask yourself that every single month. And, and then start to maybe pull some of your own stats. You can look at trend graphics, look at my blog, look at other sources that you think are, are good for data, but ask yourself that question because in that way we can sort of assess, well, is the market doing something normal here? Like, is it, is it shifting? You know, like, are, should we be concerned? Are we seeing a, a real change? Okay. So we look at the numbers, but we also talk to each other because real estate, it's about the numbers, but it's also about word on the street. Yeah. I'd right? say, wow, what's going on? 
this property is no longer selling. That's really weird. Yeah. Getting getting calls from the you know the REO asset managers, and so you could see there's I think sometimes we pick up on market dynamics not just by these hardcore stats, but I think the word on the street, sharing information. But but I do still think in the midst of everything that I think that. That, that we don't give the seasonal market enough respect. And so I think that in many cases we're, we're not in tune with it as much as we could be. And so I hope that doesn't sound condescending or anything, but I just feel like in real estate, there's, there's a lot of room for growth um, so that we can even price properties correctly because we know that the market is a little softer in this time. You know, no, or we I can give specific advice. Yeah. I think it's so, like so valuable. Like I said, I had been in real estate for, 12 years before the REO market hit and I had literally never looked at statistics and yeah uh, you know I'm a little embarrassed by that statement but it just was never a priority it wasn't important and the yeah. thing that I loved about it once I figured it out is and, and here's the thing about numbers overall they don't lie They're like the numbers are the numbers and they don't take it personal they don't care about you know which way the wind blows they don't care about any of that stuff the numbers are the numbers and they're either there and you can see it or they're not. It's like, there's yeah. no difference. And so when you really look at those stats, it's amazing the amount of information and, and confidence you get from understanding that. And it's not, it's not really that complicated. No, no. See, I mean, ultimately the numbers, they get to serve us and, and they get to, by knowing them or by pulling up a CMA, and showing a client, look, here are all sales over the past 90 days. They sold in 30 days, but look at all the listings. They've been right. on the market for 63 days, right. okay? And, and and we can begin to just use those and talk to them and, hey, the market is softer now. Do you want to sell? Do you want to sit? You know, and, and so I think that's just powerful. I, I love that stuff. Well, and here's a great tip for, for people when you're meeting with clients is that the more information is power, we all know that, right? And the reality is when you sit down with a seller or a buyer and you show them the numbers, it takes it away from, oh, me as an agent just trying to sell your home for whatever the price is. It says, I can put whatever price you want on your house, but here's the numbers. Like it's not me that's making this decision, it's the market that makes this decision. And it's really powerful when you're sitting in front of a buyer or seller. No, no, absolutely, because then you let the market speak for itself. Um, and you know one thing too, Marguerite, I don't know, I mean, I, I know very few agents who do this. Um, I know for me though, when I learned how to graph and use Excel, um, it changed the way I look at real estate, it changed the way I talk about real estate. If I hadn't learned to graph, we probably wouldn't even be talking right now. <laughs> and so I feel like I, I've been able to, to help really show here's what the, where the market's at, but there's a lot of tools out there where agents can create instant graphs with Excel. Um, there's a local appraiser in Colfax, his name's uh, Don Mackles. He has a, an amazing program that, where you can plug in all neighborhood sales or all sales of a similar size and, and get these graphs by exporting information from MLS. And I think to show up to a listing presentation with something like that is, is just, just incredible it's such a game changer and and i feel like i i maybe i'm you know i'm i'm preaching this message and no one believes it but i i just i know for me personally it, it has been it, it's been amazing so well i so, can and that's tell a you, goal and you 
yeah, I can definitely tell you that it's it's important, and because I've been there, like I said, the the difference is when when I'm sitting there talking to you and I'm just giving you my opinion, it's really just my opinion. But when yeah. I can support it, when I can back it, when I can show you information that says, look, it's not me making this decision, it's the market making this decision, yeah. all the difference in the world. Yeah, yeah, or just um, a couple of weeks ago, I did, um, there was a house that wasn't selling and the owner hired me. And, you know, the agent, great agent, you know, long time in the business. And I, I just think, it got listed too high because the house two doors down was totally remodeled, you know, and they just needed some context, some help to say, Hey, where's value really at? And it was amazing to show some graphs and to show some similar sales and be like, well, I think you guys are about a hundred K too high. Oh, wow. And, That's a big but, difference. Yeah. Yeah. But, but to put something on a graph and be like, Oh, look, this sale two doors down, it broke the record. Nothing has ever sold in the neighborhood for this much. So let's not price according to that one. Let's look at the homes that are actually most similar. What are those ones com commanding? You know, it's so easy to get distracted by that one high sale. And it's like that bright, shiny object where we're like, oh, that is just wonderful. But then it's a real disservice when it gets on the market and then it doesn't do anything. Yeah. So that that's a bummer. That's a real bummer. So I have one other question that, that I was thinking of when you were talking too is, what is your opinion on out of area appraisers? Like, you know, especially when we start to see more and more loans coming in from, you know, like Quicken loans and things like that. So sometimes we'll get an appraiser that's not even from the area and it seems like it's more challenging. Do you think it matters that much that you actually live in the area where you appraise? Well, I, I have mixed feelings. Uh, first, appraisers are licensed in the whole state. So, Just like real estate agents. that doesn't mean that I should be going down and appraising some luxury house in Newport Beach, okay? <laughs> I, I shouldn't because I'm not competent in that market. But the truth is, just because I live in the Sacramento area doesn't mean that I'm a good appraiser to give a value for the Capitol building or the new arena. Or I could have something extremely complex that's literally next door to my house that just because I'm licensed doesn't mean – I'm competent or a good fit. And so nice. I think we have to take that seriously. And if an appraiser is out of the area and accepting work from, you know, the, in a different market, they, they legally, what, what they need to do is they need to tell their clients, say, hey, I've not worked in this market before, but here are the steps I'm going to take to become competent in the market. And, and so it's kind of cool. It's a built-in tool where the appraiser can become competent. But if the appraiser's not doing that, then and showing up and doesn't really understand the idiosyncrasies of the market, not talking to the agents, um, you know, then, then that can be a real bummer. You know, it's yeah. really easy to miss value. Um, now if it's a tracked neighborhood, tracked neighborhoods are, you know, the cake for yeah. all of us. Right. You know, <laughs> but when it's something a little bit different and, and you just wonder, well, how does value really work here? You know, is this really the market? Um, then that's where I think maybe appraisers just need to be careful. And I would, de I would definitely defer to the local person. You know, I get, I, I wouldn't go to the Bay area to appraise something because I just don't know the market there. Okay. I want to be a tourist there. I want to hang yeah. out there. I, yeah, I don't, me too. you know, <laughs> I don't want to value something there. I have no idea. So, so I want to ask one last question before we wrap up today. And the question that I had has a lot to do with how do you appraise really unique properties, you know, like 
I've seen properties where they're like one of those domes or I've seen like the Victorians, you know, a house built in the twenties when there's nothing around it. I had a property actually a couple of years ago out in Wheatland and it, it was a custom home. It was on Oakley Lane and it was actually the, ended up being the highest sale in the entire town of Wheatland. Um, and it was a really, I mean, it was a gorgeous home. It was this like kind of Southern, you know, with the big porch and this beautiful, you know, like almost 4,000 square foot home on five acres with a pool and all, but there was nothing like it in Wheatland. Yeah. And I told him that I said, there's nothing anywhere in this entire town that is like this home. The the closest thing I've got is something that might be in the Loomis area, maybe, which is 45 minutes away. So And a different market, right? Yeah. Completely different market. So it was literally like one of those things I said, you know what, we're going to throw a dart at the wall <laughs> and so, we're going to see what sticks. I had no idea what um, to price that home at. I just really, I really didn't. And we ended up selling it. But it was, it took a while to sell it because we didn't have any, the agents kept calling me, well, do you have comps? I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. what do you do in that type of situation? Uh, you just decline the order. Let someone else do it. No, no I'm just kidding. Um, sort of. <laughs> yeah. um, so, well, that's what I think is humbling about real estate, first of all. And, you know, I talked to an agent and she said, hey, I have never had any trouble with my values. And I was like, really? Wow. You know, I have. You know, <laughs> what, what do you, what do you know? You know, maybe you can mentor me. And, That's but, like that agent who says, I've been around 20 years. I've never had this happen. <laughs> no, because I mean, that's why it, it's, it's humbling in real estate because there's always something new and there's always, you know, this property that's a square and how do we fit it through the, the round peg? And so I, I think that, we, we have to just ask a lot of questions, you know, sometimes it's a matter of, you know, what is similar. Let's look through years and years worth of sales in the Wheatland market. Let's, you know, let's look back in time and can we find anything similar? And then, you know, can we find anything similar in surrounding communities? And I, I don't do much in Wheatland. I have before, but, you know, in Sheridan or Lincoln or, you know, we, we've got to find something similar to paint the story of value. And if we find something similar in a different community that's, that commands a price premium, we can always deduct for that. If we find something similar in a community where prices are lower, then we, we can give it a bump up for location because Wheatland may be a superior. And so um, one thing that's golden is if the subject is sold before on the open market and we have archives in MLS, if it sold in the year 2000, I can look back and ask the question, how did it really fit in the market at the time? You know, what did it compete with? Um, of course, it could have sold for too high or too low. But I kind of, if like I did one where um, it had three previous sales, and I was able to look at those three sales and 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 really kind of establish here's how it fits, and and that was really powerful. Um, so we can do that. But I think also the questions we have to ask is where's the bottom of the market and where's the top of the market? Okay, in any neighborhood or location we're at, is it, you know, because. What what is what would people pay in Wheatland for this property 
you know, before they move over and say, you know what, we're going to scrap this and we're buying in Loomis. Mm -hmm. And so there's this threshold that I think buyers are going to consider. And, and we have to, we have to look at that. And so when we have that six bedroom house in a $200,000 neighborhood, it's twice as big as everything, you know, is it really going to sell for twice as much? Yeah. Let's, let's try to find some comps if we're lucky. Let's try to find something in a, in a truly competitive neighborhood if we're lucky. But let's also ask the question, where is the price ceiling? Because we're probably going to see buyers move on at some point to something else that they would think of as superior. And so I think that's the fascinating part to me, but that's the humbling part. And yeah. it just reminds us there's no such thing as a quick five-minute comp check. No. <laughs> for you or, or for me. You know? Yeah. And, and, and we struggle with that. And, and, it, and it's cool because then – when I'm struggling with something, I can reach out to agents and say, hey, I've got this really weird one that I'm appraising. Can I ask you for your feedback? Okay, I'm going to have to make my own decision, let the research speak, let the market speak, but I've got to reach out to professionals who work the area that I trust, that are knowledgeable. And, and it just shows, you know, that's why it's so important to talk to people, to build relationships. Um, even for agents to build relationships with appraisers just so they can call and say, hey, I'm, you know, I can't wrap my mind around this. Can you help me? So, well, and I will say that that has been a huge benefit of getting to know you, Ryan. And, you know, I've, I, I try to refer you whenever I can or because it so does I give me somebody to go to or a resource to say in a situation like that. What the heck? You know, what am I going to do with this particular you know, property, like I deal a lot with country yeah, properties. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, country properties and estates that are so different. I think we talked about this on our non-recorded version uh, about a property that I went to where it's a really unique property, beautiful custom home on the top of a hill. It's got the big power lines, you know, that go, but it's got these gorgeous views. It's on you know, 10 acres. So it's like all these different things that you're trying to kind of patch and piece together to come up with value. And I did yeah. the same thing with them. I said, you know what, we're going to throw a dart at the wall and we're going to see, you know, what price works. And if we start to get interest and in offers, we know we're in the ballpark. If we get none, we're probably not in the ballpark. Yeah. And I, I love, I love what you said. I mean, it's, I think that sometimes some of the best real estate advice is to say, look, Here's what it looks like the numbers are saying. Here's what looks like a reasonable range, but we're going to test the market because the market's going to speak to us and just yeah. respecting that. So yeah. can I share real quick? Um, I had yeah. a property that I that I appraised. It was just a really weird, very, very cool one. It actually cost an extraordinary amount to build, but um, I gave them a value before it went on the market, but I also talked about a range, and I gave them this range of, you know, of, of two hundred thousand wow. dollars, and that that seems crazy. But I said it. Here's a value at one point something, but here's this range, and it's an unknown how the market's really going to respond to this. So you might want to consider being serious about accepting an offer within this range. And of course, it was priced way higher, sat on the market for a long, 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 long time, then came down. And it sold within that range. And so I think that it, it just reminds us just to respect the market and that, that we don't and we can't know everything. And there's no such thing as here is like the fine, fine value. 
but here's a reasonable range and hopefully we can whittle it down in most cases it wouldn't well it's one to one million dollars you know yeah that's not a good that's not a good range let's get it <laughs> let's get it tight if possible but on the weird stuff we might have to just go out a little bit and say look it looks like the top of the market is right here and there's just something so respectable about that in my mind well and at the end of the day value is what somebody's willing to pay right like that's well, really what it comes down to many times but, I would say what the market's willing to pay. So yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for uh, taking three different sessions to record this with me. I really <laughs> appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I know we've gotten to speak together at an event in the past. That was a lot of fun. So Absolutely. look forward to doing some more of that. So have a wonderful Thanksgiving again. I know we're right here, right before Thanksgiving. This will probably air next week. So Right on. For those of you listen, I'm really thankful for you and your time, and I appreciate you being here today. Likewise, it's really an honor, sincerely. So thank you so much. Appreciate you, Margaret. And thank you, everybody, for joining us on The Real Estate Real World. I'm extremely grateful to have you as listeners listening to our show. We've now been rated in the top 10 on Curator and a few others. So thanks so much for listening in. Be sure to head on over to Real Estate Real World and write us a review. We love reviews. They help us get higher in the rankings. So thanks so much, everybody. Go out and make it a great day. Thank you for joining us today on Real Estate Real World where we talk with masters and leaders in real estate and beyond on how we can raise the bar in our industry. Please subscribe over on iTunes. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. Your reviews encourage us and help others find our podcast. For show notes and hot topics on what's going on right now in our real estate industry, pop on over to www.realestaterealworld.com and add your name to our email. Thanks again for listening and go out there, be a part of the elite masterclass in raising the bar on the real estate industry.